Welcome to OsteoTalk, an Osteopathy Australia podcast dedicated to delivering clinically relevant education for osteopaths to learn, connect and collaborate by drawing on a wealth of knowledge seen in practice as well as experts in other disciplines. Join us as we explore real clinical issues through interviews and discussion with top practitioners in Australia and internationally. For more learning and development resources, visit our website at www.osteopathy.org.au. Welcome to the OsteoTalk podcast brought to you by Osteopathy Australia. On today's episode, we welcome the highly experienced and respected Dr. Nick Brasher. Nick is the owner and principal osteopath at Peak Osteopathy in Hawthorne and for the past eight years, an osteopath for the Collingwood Football Club and prior to that, six years with the Western Bulldogs. The focus for today's episode is athletic groin pain. Nick draws on his experience working in elite sport and private practice to help us simplify and streamline our approach to this often complex presentation. Welcome, Nick, to the Osteo Talk podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Anne. Great to be here. Fantastic. Could you just start by talking about your current role between the clinic and the football club? Yeah, not a problem. So, look, um, my main role, I suppose, is is still really uh, as an osteo in private practice in, in Hawthorne. So, I I run Peak Osteo in Hawthorne in Melbourne, um, which I absolutely love. I've got a terrific group of, of young osteos who make my time there really enjoyable and um, you know, support me so much, really, especially over the last two years with, with everything that we've all been through over the last couple of years with COVID. Um, and I try and get out there every day, but uh, it's probably 50% of my work is spent at Peak and the other 50% I spend in, my, in the other, other capacity uh, as the osteo for the Collingwood Footy Club, um, which I've done for about the last eight years. And, um, yeah, and, and look, similarly, I'm surrounded by some fantastic colleagues there and, and uh, yeah, a really good, good group of practitioners. And uh, I think anyone who's probably run a clinic on their own or works in sport probably knows that both of those jobs don't really ever end. So I'm pretty, really fortunate to have you know, a great collection of people around me, both uh, in the clinic and a really supportive and understanding family. Great. Could you tell us a bit about your role within the club and then what sort of further study you did to equip you to work in the AFL? Yeah, not a problem. So, look, I've been at Collingwood for about eight years. Um, and prior to that, I worked at the Western Bulldogs for five. So all of that work has been as an osteopath. Um, I haven't really done a whole lot of other jobs until probably COVID's hit when everyone's sort of been forced to take on a second job. But, look, essentially the role of an osteo fits into the medical team um, uh, pretty succinctly. So... We've got a terrific, terrific group of practitioners. We've got two doctors, three physios and myself who probably form the, the really core, real core of the decision-making and the day-to-day management of the players. Um, and we report into the high-performance manager. Uh, and that's sort of, that's how we come about the sort of day-to-day management and the reporting of, of what the players are up to in terms of training loads and, and injuries. Um, the other staff around us has, has changed a lot with, with COVID. We probably, as has been in the news, we probably lost about 40% of staff within the footy department itself um, due to the cutbacks over COVID. And so we've got, you know, a lot of people around us, but the, the bulk of that in the medical department is sort of a handful of myos and sports trainers who do, do a lot of the, uh, the day-to-day stuff. We've got a dietitian, psychologist, a podiatrist, a bunch of fantastic S&C coaches, and we've even got a conditioning specialist who used to do some work in ballet. So it's pretty varied. Everyone brings something pretty different to the table. Um, and we've just got a, yeah, we've got a really good relationship. And we bounce ideas off one another. We bring, everyone brings something pretty different into the room and we're able to nut that out and, and, and learn from one another as, as well as, um, as well as what we provide. Um, probably yeah, look of my role, 50% of it's probably hands-on 50 to 60%, I suppose. And that's probably training and treatment and preparation and uh, taping and the like. And then probably 40% sort of early stage rehabilitation, individual preparation programs and, and injury prevention type of stuff training and game day and then probably 10% meetings and, and planning and, and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so look, it's a yeah, pretty complex sort of role. It's a fantastic role. I really enjoy it. And I, I love it and it fits really well with my, my clinical work. You know, without if I didn't work in the clinic still, I wouldn't treat any females. I'd be, uh, you know, pretty restricted to guys between the ages of 18 and 33. So 
I really <laughs> like having that variety. Um, I'm really fortunate to have that and, um, and go from there. So looking, I suppose what I bring is, is mainly that I treat most of the axial stuff. So a lot of the, I treat everything, but I probably get the first crack at the, uh, the axial stuff, the necks and lower backs, hips and groins. But we all treat a bit of everything. We bounce off one another a lot and treat a lot of peripheral stuff as well um, and really sort of bind together to, to get it going. Yep. And um, what further study did you do? Yeah, so look, I've done it. I've always really enjoyed the PD side of things. So I, I've really tried to tailor it towards sport, I suppose, along the way, along with some really generic stuff. Uh, way back at uni, I went and did a level one sports training course that uh, when I was going through and I was, I was still playing football. At that stage, through my 20s, uh, I was playing with De La Salle in the amateurs here in Melbourne. And um, I've never really worked a day as a sports trainer, to be honest. I've, um, I've done a fair bit of uh, taping and, and, and the like uh, through uni, and, and, but I was always playing and sort of take on the rehab and the taping stuff on the side at halftime and before games. Um, so that was probably the most influential early on. And then since then, really, look, all the, I've done dry needling, which I use a lot, um, and advanced dry needling. Um, but I've probably tailored a lot of my, my PD towards S and C. So um, I think one of the, the most influential would be my level one uh, ASCA um, S and C qualifications, which I reckon I'd recommend to to really any osteo. To be honest, um, I think that's probably the, the 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 loose end in some ways when we graduate is that our, our knowledge of rehab and S and C is probably lacking a little bit from from particular physios and and some of the others. So. That's something I'd highly recommend if you can get you sink your teeth into that. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, Heath Williams and Garrett Tester have got their online S and C stuff, uh, and I've I've done that just as an aside, and that's awesome. You know, I recommend yeah. all my practitioners to get into that sort of stuff because it's it's a great little uh, way to get your head around the progressions and regressions of, of basic sort of clinically relevant exercises. But yeah, and a bit most of it's really been hands on along the way. I've learned a lot from working in the footy club, bouncing ideas off the doctors and physios along the way, and um, different practitioners and finding good mentors and I think, you know, PD is pretty accessible these days with podcasts and research papers and things like that. So I tend to try and immerse myself in that as well. But um, yeah, it's, look, you can't buy time. Time builds experience really, doesn't it? So it's, um, it just takes time. I think, you know, there's, I think I remember at uni, there was someone who used to say that you got to palpate miles and miles of necks and I probably never really knew what that meant at the time, but it, it, yeah. um, it sort of resonates now that you, you know, it's easy to spit out and say you're a guru at, treating this or that and you know it's uh you can take over social media and put videos and things like that up but it just takes time it just takes yep. time and experience and that's your best friend great so when nick and i were researching this topic we both commented on what a pandora's box the groin is so can you can you tell us why the groin is such a complex complaint yeah, it really is. I don't know what I've signed up for here, Em, to be honest. But um, no, look, it's it's. I, I like the complex ones. I always like complex patients and 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 pains. And I think the thing about the the hip and groin is that it's um its greatest strength is that it's so dynamic. You know that that area is it's it's put under such amazing force, high loads, incredible speeds, changes of direction, uh, jumping, landing. You know, so many different sort of movements that it, it really requires a great deal of stability and strength and, and, and capacity to, to, to put up with the things that we're asking it to do. Um, you know, you've got two ball and socket joints that can move in all these weird and wonderful ways. Um, you know, high range under heavy loads. You've got the, the, the pubic symphysis, which is that sort of secondary cartilaginous joint that helps to stabilize the anterior part of the pelvis. And then at the back, you've got the SIJs and the spine. So you, you really need everything sort of pulling in the right direction for things to work well. Plus, you've got like, everything around the pelvis is an attachment point, essentially, for all the ligaments and tendons. So you're dealing with a really complex array of anatomy in a really small area, I suppose. Um, which really makes you know the importance of knowing your anatomy and and uh, and keeping on top of those biomechanical considerations uh, really important. Um, yeah, look, it's, it is a Pandora's box. I don't profess to be any sort of you know groin <laughs> or hip or pain guru, hip pain guru, but I suppose a lot of what today is about is just sort of nutting out and getting out some of the ideas that I've thrown yeah. in the melting pot along the way and um, and trying to impart some of that knowledge on everyone. That's great. Yeah, we really want to try and translate what you've learnt you know, in your, um, in your sporting practice, um, you know, to help us really streamline um, and simplify our approach to treating the groin. So what, what is important to cover in our case history? 
Yeah, I think you just hit the nail on the head there. I, I'm a big fan of trying to keep things as simple as possible. I, I think we, we really sometimes have a tendency to try and overcomplicate things both with ourselves and with our patients. So whenever I'm doing PD with, with my staff here in the clinic or, uh, or we're discussing things at the, at the footy club, it's, um, it's really about trying to sort of find you know, the, the path of least resistance in some ways and keep things as simple as possible. So I tend to find that the best way to sort of think about groin pain is to think that they're likely to come from um, a combination of um, or one of three sort of main sources. So <clears throat> the first one's really your sort of entity-based groin pain. So your pubic, adductor, uh, inguinal, iliopsoas type groin pains. The second one's probably your sort of hip-related groin pain. So things like FAI, chondral damage, degenerative change. And the third one is sort of, I put under the blanket of, of other, I suppose. And that's, you know, a lot of your red flags, your sort of neoplastic stuff and systemic things. Um, so your history really to me is 75% of your assessment. It's really, really important. Um, it's Groin pain is one of those things that can bubble along in the background for, for a lot of the time. And, and anyone who's treated athletes at any level would know that sometimes these are the things they mention last. Um, they're often really hesitant to, to mention groin pain because sometimes it can it can actually really inhibit the ability to train and play. So sometimes you don't find out until a little bit further down the track that, that these sort of things are going on. So your history does become really important. I think the main ones, you know, all the usual stuff that we all we all know through through our, our clinical practice, you know, the the where, why, how, all that sort of stuff is is really important. The initial onset, I reckon, is a really important one as well. Um, but I think probably the more pertinent ones are sort of, you know, really getting to the nitty gritty and you know, are you getting the pain on activity or after activity? Is it in recovery? Um, what are the main aggravating factors when you're moving? So is it decelerating? Is it accelerating? Is it when you're hitting max speed? Is it change of direction, jumping, landing, those sort of things? I think it's also really important to get an idea of what's worked and what hasn't worked for the athlete. So that'll give you an idea of what to focus on and probably also what to sort of flick over. Um, you know, if someone can't change direction, what is it about the change of direction that they can't do? Uh, uh, and, and what is it that's, that's aggravating things? So you need to work out the why, I suppose, is, is where I'm going with all that. And then it's really just about the, loca the locations, in, you know, absolutely crucial because it is such a dynamic and complex area that you've really literally got to be able to put your finger on where the pain is. Um, and I think, you know, your history is also really important in terms of ruling out the, the other causes under that umbrella. Um, you know, they're all the more sinister sort of things. And I think a lot of the time you don't want to miss things that are you know, age-related, whether it's SCFE or Perthes or even sort of neoplastic sort of changes. So I think your history is really, really important. Okay, great. Can you talk about your approach to assessment of athletic groin pain? Yeah, so um, I think I just touched on it before. The, the two things, the assessments are really crucial following on from the history. So the, the main thing I try and do is, excuse me, it's nutted out to, to probably two things. So one is putting your finger directly on the pain. So it, exactly where the pain is. And the second one is the ability to reproduce the pain that the athletes feeling themselves. So to me, that second one's really important because it, because it's such a complex area, uh, look, a lot of things are going to hurt. So it's not so much about producing, reproducing, I should say, a pain. It's, it's a lot of times about reproducing their pain, the pain that they're describing. Um you know, everyone's got their own processes they go through and when they're assessing the body itself. But, you know, I tend to look at the way the hip moves in all ranges. Uh, you're looking for things like clicking, catching, locking, giving, giving way and whether they are painful or whether it's annoying. I suppose in terms of the phys exam, um, on top of the basics that probably we all go through, the main things I'm looking at are internal external rotation um, at 90 degrees. And then I compare that to an internal external rotation prone and, and really look at how that, that correlates, yeah, with the supine findings. Um, keeping in mind that things like the, the, the deep hip external rotators also have a function in hip extension. So that when they will limit external rotation when they are in flexion. So you're looking at that end feel. Is that end feel a hard, bony sort of end feel? Is it a softer sort of more bouncy sort of end feel where it could be a you know, muscular uh, restriction that's, that's, that's affecting that range? Then moving on to things probably like fiber and, and beta or fadia, which depending on which way you say it, um, you know, they're not always comfortable, but, but is that the pain that the person's going through? Thomas test is a great one. Hip extension is really crucial, which I'll, I'll touch on probably a little bit later. Um, there's a test called Craig's test, which uh, maybe not everyone's familiar with, but it's a, it's, a, it's a test really 
it's basically prone hip, in, hip internal rotation. Um, it's a way of testing for things like femoral antiversion, um, which you're probably going to find that one in 20 people are going to have. Um, and that's really a problem when it comes to sort of uh, changes in the um, in the torsion of the femoral neck, which can affect the, the moment arm and the line of action of the hip um, muscle attachments. And that can lead to things like pelvic instability, altered muscle activity, can lead to a bit of a, a valgus of the knees, you know, and it's theories around it you know, contributing to uh, ACL prevalence and things like that. So things like that, I think are really important to know that. And then probably the other one, particularly for osteos, is really, it's really important to clear out the SIJs and the lumbers as a, as a cause of, of hip pain as well. Um, then I suppose it's, the, it's that second one of putting the finger on it. So getting back to those main entity-based causes of pain, um, I tend to look at, at really, yeah, literally putting a finger on the pain and but putting those those particular structures on a stretch or on a contraction that uh, and, and trying to sort of reproduce pain that may be coming on with, it, with exercise. So if you're adductor-based pain, you're going to look at uh, resistant hip adduction, palpation along the line of the adductors um, from that sort of adductor longus emphasis down into the belly of the muscle, pubic bone pain, you're going to really palpate right on the bone itself. Um, it's probably, you know, that bony pain is probably not going to be so much with contraction, but you might feel above the, above that, uh, that pubic bone into the, um, into that uh, rec abdominis atta attachment. Uh, inguinal pain is going to be more likely to sort of come on with, you know, abdominal or core contraction. So coughing, sneezing, bracing, those sort of things. Um, as well as when you palpate around that sort of inguinal ligament and the conjoint tendon, um, superficial little ring, uh, that sort of aponeurosis where the obliques and the TA come down. So there's a, there's a hell of a lot going on in that area. Um, that's a really complex one. And the iliosolus is probably the other one, and that's that's going to light up with things like you know resistant hip flexion um, or stretching the hip into extension, sort of like a modified Thomas test through there um, along the line of the hip flexor. So, I mean, at the end of the day, those categories probably don't matter too much. It's more about sort of a description of where the pain is and, and working out what sort of structures you're dealing with and then probably going forward from there. Then I'd probably lead into things like your pain provocation test. So I think the squeeze test is one that everyone knows and you can do that at, at three different angles, really. That's sort of 0, 45 and 90 degrees. And to me, this is a really great one um, for groin pain, probably particularly at 45 degrees. It tends to be the most... Uh, the optimal position um, and that's one you can use for monitoring throughout a season or through a training block to, to look at where people are going so you monitor the strength at the footy club we've got a piece of technology that's you know it's um it's called the groin bar that we use a lot in the clinic i use a handheld dynamometer um, but really you can pick up things like a, a you can use a blood pressure blood pressure cuff and just pump it up to a certain level that's standardized for you and and look at the the pressure that the the, the patient's able to sort of impart on that and just as long as it's a standardised measure, you can keep going with that and, and track that through a particular period of time. The squeeze test is really good. Um, um, how, why do you test it at the three different, well, a zero and then 45, 90 degrees? I think, I think it's also looking at, that's the main thing I'm looking at there is really which, which is, where is the position of pain? You know, is there, is there a differentiation between what they're feeling at zero, 45 and 90? Um, 45 tends to be the one that's going to light up those those inductors the most. Um, but again, trying to get an idea of, of reproducing the exact pain that they're going through. Um, the next one I'd, I'd probably move on to would be the crossover test, which um, if people don't know, it's basically a Thomas test. Um, but you're, you're loading that hip flexion in an extended position and looking at whether there's any crossover pain. So pain crossing over to the other side, to the unaffected side. So, and that, that's going to look at some shearing. That's probably the point where you're going to say they shouldn't be running at all. If they shouldn't be? To that. They shouldn't be. No. Okay. Why Why is that? Because they'll ir irritate themselves yeah, okay. fairly quickly, to be honest. Yep. Yeah, they'll be pretty sore. They're, they're the really severe ones. Yeah, okay. Um, active straight leg raise, resistant straight leg raise, I, I really like, a bit like a lunge. Um, these are the sort of single leg tests, tests that, again, can give you an idea of that shearing at the pubic symphysis. And I think also then probably your abdominal pain in terms of another pain provocation test, just having a bit of a feel around of what you what you're going through. Um, you know, if you palpate around that pubic ramus, you can you can get things like that superficial inguinal ring, the rectus abdominis insertion, and the pubic symphysis really easily. So that's it's just about it's really about looking around for what is the asterisk, what what's the what's the test that that basically reproduces the pain that the athlete's feeling. Um, because that's the test I'm going to come back to. That's what I'm going to come back to and say, right, well, as you're progressing, as you're going through the, the gears of, of recovery, 
that's a good indicator for the athlete to look at and say, right, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. You know, I'm starting yeah. to feel less intense pain, take some pain scores, take a strength test on the squeeze test or whatever it may be. Um, and, and that's what we'll come back to over and over again to say, right, you know, we're, we're training in the right direction. Do you use a resisted abdominal contraction? Yeah, I think that's, I'll, I'll often just use a hat, my own resistance on, yep. on their chest. Yeah, that's, I think that's a good one to do. It's a, similar to the bracing as well. I think that's a, that's okay. a good one to look at. Um, I think, I think probably the, the one thing to keep in mind with a lot of these sort of things is that a lot of these tests um, that we're taught at uni and, and beyond, they're really sensitive um, for hip and groin pain themselves, but they're pretty poor when it comes to specificity. So yep. a lot of the time, it's not so much about diagnosing you know, something in or out. It's actually about, sorry, something in. It's more about ruling things out. Yeah. Um, what are the tests that don't hurt? You'll probably get a lot of information from those. If, you, yeah. if you're looking at an adductor that doesn't hurt on a, on a squeeze, well, you, can, you can probably rule out, um, you know, sometimes you can rule out the adductor muscle itself. So yeah. um, I think that you've got to keep in mind that, that um, a lot of things are going to hurt and it's really about trying to find exactly yeah. what the pain is itself. Yeah, and then putting that together with your, with your history. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Do you do any other you know, dynamic assessments, do you get them out, have a look at running, changing direction, kicking? Yeah. Well, I think that, I think that's really important. I mean, I, I, I'm lucky in my, in my role, like, you know, we've got 43, 44 athletes. Um, I get to see them train and play three or four times a week. So I, I'm really fortunate that I basically get to watch them run around and can see all the little idiosyncrasies and the little different things that they do. Um, but I'd really recommend people get outside and have a look at, at how their athletes it's move even if you just go ask them to take a video of themselves running down at the park or whatever it may be but if you can get out and watch them move i think it's really really good uh take them to the park watch their strategy around things like straight line running you might get them to run you know with a dowel or a stick over their head and look at their trunk um rotation you know are they able to absorb load and maintain stability through the trunk and stiffness through the trunk you might look at their high speed and sort of multi-directional mechanics and try and mimic whatever they do in their sport things like change of direction or cutting um accelerating decelerating especially things that they're having trouble with you're really looking for what stands out about those movements that are hurting so is there something that they're doing or what's their strategy that's, that's letting them down and then i think yeah definitely kicking jumping that sort of stuff jumping landing off the affected lead leg whatever it may be things that are more specific to their sport um i, I think it's important with that one that, that they've done some studies that have, have shown a little bit that there's not a massive correlation between the type of groin pain that someone's suffering and, and the way that they move um, so you're really looking at probably trying to nut out what it is about their biomechanics that's letting them down. So it's, it's not so much about creating a recipe or, uh, um, you know, a tailored approach to particular types of groin pain. It's, it's looking at how that individual moves themselves. Um, I think it's really important to look at also how they coordinate their movement. So, um, you know, what's the relationship between the prime movers or the torque producers, the, you know, the big, big, strong muscles uh, and the stabilizers themselves. So you, your prime movers is sort of your rectus, your TFL, your rec fam, your reductor longus, your hamstrings, you know, and, and they can often be the ones that are symptomatic. Um, but you know, is there something that's, that's, that's working or not working around them and it's forcing them into some form of overload or, is the role of the stabilizers and by the stabilizers, I mean, things like your iliosis, your DP protosis, your obliques, your glute min, you know, those sort of things. Are, are they, you know, picking up the slack under fatigue? So the best way to really, I think your stabilizers, I, I tend to assess stabilizers in their inner range. It's probably the best way to do it. So when the muscles are at its shortest, so for something like an iliosis, you might look at doing just a standing hip flexion test. So you get them standing up on one leg on the, on the unaffected side and with that, with the affected side up, and get them literally to put their finger on where they feel the pain if it reproduces it. So is it, is it on rec fem or is it on uh, the iliosis? Um, you know, are they hitting are they hitting something a little bit more medial? And then you can work around strategies of that in your rehab. Okay. For your glute min, you might look at sort of you know a sideline active and passive hip ab, hip abduction. Um, you might if you deep hip, you might get them to do like an arabesque or something like that where they bend forward and are they rotating through the trunk? Are they able to maintain that inflection? The abdominals, you could just do something like a, a plank, you know, tilt the pelvis slightly posteriorly just to sort of get the obliques involved there and see if, what their strategies are around that. Um, you know, I think it just depends on how far you want to take it with a lot of this stuff. That the, I know a lot of clinics now with, I think, uh, Steve King and the guys at Strength by Numbers have, have, uh, have 
put a bit of technology out there that I know a lot of clinics have and some, some of them have got it from elsewhere that they do things like force decks and, and, and the like to test um, you know, force absorption. So I think if you've, got, if you've got access to that sort of stuff and you can do things like counter movement jumps or um, drop jumps, that sort of stuff, you know, it's, it's all going to help. And you're looking at the, what their strategies are around absorbing force. But at a minimum, I think I'd be looking also at the way they squat and deadlift and lunge. You know, they're, they're the sort of things that are going to form a lot of the basis for your rehab and, and, um, and your biomechanical advice off the back of it. Okay. When you're doing your, you know, hands-on assessment, are there, or, you know, focusing more with your osteopathic assessment, are there any patterns or dysfunctions you have picked up that commonly occur with groin pain? Um, look, I wouldn't, I wouldn't specifically say there's, there's any patterns or dysfunctions. Um, no, I mean, I, I suppose, yeah, I think I've touched on it before, off the back of that sort of consensus paper, they, they certainly in the way that people move, they're finding there's not a massive um, correlation between particular types of groin pain, um, you know, a particular diagnosis and a particular type of movement. Um, but I think the things that I, I probably look at more so than that is I, I keep an eye on probably more the young sort of immature type of athletes, the guys who've come in with and girls who, who don't have, I suppose what you'd say, a, a long duration of training and a, a real uh, robust history of training behind them. Uh, um, you know, I'd probably look also at, at the, the athletes who, who lack in those areas with the stabilizers, um, the ones who've gone through a big increase in training loads, I think I also look at the the long lean athletes, particularly those sort of gangly late teen boys who come in, who probably haven't grown into their body yet, and they're nice and tall, but they haven't probably filled out and stabilised just yet. And at least anecdotally, I, I think there's something in that to look at, to throw into your screening with those sort of athletes that um, you know they're for, they're putting such massive forces through their body. Um, at, at really high speed, um, they're the ones that I think your screening tools are really important. So you're going to look at how those stabilizers are going and what they, how they move essentially. And they're probably more in terms of patterning. I'll probably think more around what can you do to their day to day, week to week management in terms of um, injury prevention type programs. Those sort of activities. Injury prevention is a tough term because I don't think you can actually really completely you know prevent injury. But in terms of programs and activities they can do to, to work on those. Um, capacity issues and build their sort of robustness and, and capacity over time is, is really important. So yeah, screening, it comes back to that. Uh, but stability is probably one of the big ones. You tend to find the ones who can move well and hold things together uh, are going to, they're going to get, get along pretty well. Okay. And how can we as osteopaths use manual therapy to assist in the healing and management of groin pain? Yeah, look, I, I think manual therapy to me has a massive role to play with hip and groin pain um you know it's, i think it's really interesting i try and probably break things down into two areas and this is the same in the clinic as i would with with athletes at footy as well so i'll probably break it down to short term and long term so short term you're looking to minimize pain increase range of motion you know modify their activities get them back to training essentially give them a chance to get back to play and train um and manual therapy can have an enormous enormous impact on that um long term you're probably really trying to build on those short-term gains that manual therapy can give you. So that's where you're going to bring in your rehab side of things. So from a short-term perspective and a treatment, absolutely awesome. You know, I, I do a hell of a lot of treatment on, on hip and groin athletes. You've got to be careful, obviously, sometimes not to flare them up with your treatment, but I use the full, the full gamut of osteo techniques. Um, you know, I use a lot of soft tissue massage. I use manipulations and, and, and MET every day, um, needling sensational through to, you know to gain access into that deep hip unit as well and, and the glutes and the ductors so there's a lot of fair bit of needling um i use a lot of articulation work you know there's been there was a study in 2010 uh by um someone by the name of lewis who, who basically spoke about the, the decrease in hip extension to as little as about a two degree loss of hip extension can increase the anterior hip pain up to sorry anterior hip loading up to about 24 percent so if you can have that impact on, a, on an athlete where you can get them out there training and you can get them back to, to what they're doing and maintain, even if it's just a short-term gain in hip extension, that's going to have an enormous impact on their ability to get through a training session and then to build on that in the long term. So that's where the long-term side of things come in. So you might throw some, some 
some things into the program to help work on hip extension or to maintain the hip range so they're not losing hip range itself. Um, in terms of osteo techniques, look a lot of I do a lot of fascial and sort of cam strain type of work um, around the abdi wall and and around that uh, that lower area above the pubic symphysis that can that can have a really big impact on on the tone through the abdominal wall there. Um, but look, heaps of work through um, pelvic mechanics, thoracic mobility. I do a fair bit of work on on diaphragm and and breathing strategies with with players to try and decrease, particularly with abdominal causes as well, to try and decrease some of the tension they're holding through there. Thoracic mobility is really important to anyone who's trying to move properly. Anyone who's had a stiff back will know how, how limiting a thoracic spine, a stiff thoracic spine can be. Um, but then look, with running athletes and particularly in, in a country like Australia, where we have so many field and change of direction type sports that you know, your lower limb mechanics and your foot mechanics, knee and, and fib head coming up through that lateral sling into the hamstring and, and things like that are, are just crucial. So I think as an osteo, we've, we've got, we've got a, a lot to contribute in this area um, to allow athletes or just people, general members of the public to, to be able to function and, and train. And then it's really just then about using those tools to, to point them in the right direction with their management so that they make the long-term gains. Um, you know, the long-term one, but it's, it's interesting. The short term is the easy bit. That's the, that's the bit we're all good at, I suppose, at osteo that we can get it right. Um, we can always, generally get people to help them feel help them feel better um the long term it's a hard bit and and they're the ones who if you don't get it right they're going to be back in your office pretty quickly the minute their training loads go back up again saying hang on i'm in pain again you know what, what do i do next and yeah and that's if you see them they might end up down the road seeing someone else but um the long term it's the important part so it's that it's that regular short-term treatment get things going get them moving and then give them the, the opportunity to build on that okay how do you approach your exercise or you know rehab prescription yeah um look it's obviously it's interesting i i think rehab it's obviously different for every patient and it depends what you found with those assessments and i think some of those things like your running techniques and the things we spoke about both in and out of the clinic it's really about identifying what those big rocks are so what are the things you move first um at the end of the day i'm trying to look to to build capacity in the tissue uh you know build the build some strength in the areas that are weak take the load off the impacted area um but also to address a lot of those biomechanical considerations as well and basically help them move better you know strength and conditioning isn't really all about getting people big in the gym it's about helping people move better and that's um that's really important so i suppose from a rehab perspective the main point i'd like to make is that you don't be driven towards the side of the pain so you're not necessarily trying to drive exactly where the pain is you're looking to work around that um what is it that's letting down that side of pain what's what are, what are we trying to find so i think your general your general goals early on are obviously to deload and to um to modify activity so that they're not overloading the impacted area whether that whether it is entity based or whether it's bony based or joint based or whatever it may be you're looking to modify activities so you know for an example it might be with 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 hip related groin pain you might decrease you know if someone's suffering from some hip impingement, decrease the depth of their squats. You can still squat, you can do a sit to stand, you can do those sort of things, but don't don't get them with a heavy bar on their back, squatting really deep, you know, um, bum to ground sort of stuff. Um, working through a range, working through a way that, that, that works for them. There's always a different way to do things. Um, and I, I suppose the early goals are going to be around, yeah, working on that motor control and strength. So that's where you're going to focus on those big rocks. You know, it might be the deep hip in it. It might be working through your, t- your TA or your glute min or your trunk control or whatever it may be. But essentially, it's getting them pain-free and back to that pre-injury state. So from a strength perspective, you might go back to testing the unaffected limb. And, and the goal really there is to get them back to probably within 10 to 15% of the unaffected limb or to their pre-injury, uh, you know, pre-injury figures um, if you haven't taken you know, prior testing. Um, so you might start with things like isometrics to settle it down and you might start to work through. I'm pretty keen to get them back into sort of isotonics pretty quickly uh, and get them moving. So you might start them, you know, if you're looking at those, those stabilizers again, if we sort of hop back to those, you know, the, the obliques, um, you might start them with things like just basic stuff like you know, golf swing trunk rotations or a pull-off press or something like that through there. It doesn't need to be rocket science. It just needs to be able to sort of hit the, hit the right spots. There's no perfect exercise. The perfect exercise is the one that hits the spot. For, the, yep. that, for that particular patient so for ta you might do some leg slides or some fallouts um 
you know, I really like doing a, a single leg lower in that sort of inner range. So it's almost like a modified dead bug, get them up in that sort of tabletop position and a really, really small range. So you're not, you're not getting them heavy up through the diaphragm or high up into the rectus abdominis. You're trying to really isolate that TA. Um, you know, deep hip, you might look at things like uh, trying to identify QF and, and, and work on that real sort of um, that deep hip with things like a new external rotation or a seated hip seated with a TheraBand or a, a power band. Uh, glute min, you might just do some sideline hip abduction or a, um, or a standing hip abduction. You know, they're really easy to do. I think what, I think the main thing, if, whatever the exercise is, it's, it's just important to progress the exercises really well. And, and whether that's through the progression of the actual exercise itself or you're adding resistance, um, getting them moving. The, you know, TheraBands probably aren't enough on their own. I think you probably need to move relatively quickly to things like multiple therabands together, increasing the density of the theraband, using power bands, uh, and then probably even plus or minus if you get access to a gym or the athletes got access to a gym to get them back moving functionally in the gym pretty quickly. Really, if you don't have access to that in your clinic, or you don't have access, or they don't have access to it. I'd, I'd try and just build a relationship with a exercise physiologist or an SNC coach locally. I, I think they're great relationships for osteos to have anyway. They they yeah. seem to really identify well with a lot of things that we find and and it's just great networking for your clinic as well makes uh, uh, the, the patient will enjoy the fact that you've got someone close who you can um, communicate well with and and they feel like they're being supported from all angles so i suppose that's your base level and then and then it's just it becomes sport specific from there you're looking at then building up the speed a little bit from there so you're looking at running mechanics the use of things like plyometrics speed and power work Moving faster, but just making making sure that you're maintaining control with all those movements. Might be simple things like step ups with plates or lunges to a box or change of direction type of activities. Um, but they're the things that will get you back to a point where the person's ready to ready to run essentially. Yep. Provided they pass that crossover test, I'm probably happy for them to run yep. from there. Okay. Just initially with your isometrics, if you've got someone that's you know moderately to to highly irritable, how how do you determine you know, the duration of the holds and, and how many reps they do. Yeah. I mean, that's always, the, it's, yeah, it's a hard one, isn't it? It's a lot of the time it's trying to work out what their capacity is. And there's going to be a bit of trial and error with any sort of rehab. I think the number one thing with that, regardless of what duration you choose for, for an isometric hold. And even when you move on to isotonics, it's about educating the patient to, to identify the things to be careful of. So I, I talk really quickly about the pain that you're, you're looking to experience on that pain scale and everyone's got different numbers that they use, but I try and keep it around that sort of, I say to people, if it's up to a three or four out of 10, that's a dull ache. You know, that's, that's, that's an ache that you can deal with. If it hits that five to six and it starts being sharp, well, that's, that's identifying that we're, we're probably somewhere we shouldn't Much. be. So, yep. yeah. So I, I, look, I, I think the general rule with a lot of those sort of things is, is you might do three to four, repetitions of maybe 30 seconds with an with an isometric but it's about identifying that and, and modeling it i think if the patient's got their expectations uh you know set in the right position early on um and they understand that that rehab often isn't just a linear progression from a to b they're going to have those ups and downs along the way but it, it, the easiest way you'll get from a to b is to identify what to do next when you hit when you hit a speed bump so when you hit something that does flare things up how do you bring it back down again and what do we do next how do you approach your return to play and running, cutting, changing direction activities? And how do you know when they're ready? Yeah, so I think uh, once you've ticked off that, that motor control and strength focus um, and you've worked on some of those big rocks and the, 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 the basic movements you've identified outside, um, you're really looking to try and bring things a bit further up to speed. Uh, a little bit more so you, you've worked on your running mechanics I think the main thing to do is particularly in the running sports and the field sports is to keep them as much as possible pain permitting uh, and obviously with that crossover test we mentioned earlier uh, that will get them back running provided they pass that provided they can do their straight line running uh, it's good then to introduce some change of direction um, the main thing I'm looking at with the change of direction introduction is really that that symmetry with range of motion and control through range in their hips and then i suppose the main thing is really the pain as well so provided that crossover test is negative and, and they're not getting pain on those change of direction movements so i tend to introduce that relatively early just at a lower intensity so 
Um, it's interesting. I was speaking to our high performance manager at the, at the football club the other day about some of this sort of stuff and, and his theory with his rehab, and I think it's a good way, I really like the way um, he explained it, was that you can really introduce that, that change of direction work at, at probably 10 to 15% lower than whatever they're doing their straight line linear work at. So if they're running at 70% straight line, you can get them doing some of that light change of direction stuff at say 55 to 60% and then so on as you increase that uh, that straight line work. And I think that's a good way to introduce it provided they're paying for it. Um, oh, so when, when you're talking about the percentage there, are you referring yeah. to sort of the speed, the duration or, or the intensity or accommodation? Yeah. Probably all of the above, but probably more so speed, really, is, is the main thing. Um, the intensity will be dictated uh, on the, and the duration of the training will be dictated by the tolerate as well. But um, that's, that's yeah, that's top-end speed. Okay. Yep. Um, so I suppose once they, they get that change of direction going and, and they can start doing a little bit more sports-specific work, um, your next goal becomes getting them into full training again and getting them in, in with the entire group, um, so I tend to look at that as being, it's really just an extension of that change of direction work. So once they've got that symmetrical multi-level mechanics are, are, are really good and, and, and back to where they should be. And I think the main thing, again, going back to those initial tests that we use as the asterisks to sort of keep an eye on, on their progressions, if the crossover is the test to get them back to running, um, I tend to look at that pain-free squeeze at all three levels, so 0, 45 and 90, um, as being a really good indicator of, of where they're at from a, um, a pain a pain perspective but you're also going to go back to whatever your asterisk was so whatever that may have been if provided they're they're negative and those that's a that's a good point to progress so yeah multi-level mechanics moving moving really well moving strongly changing direction without pain is a really good way to go and then i think once they're back into that full training it, it, it probably becomes yeah even more pertinent to look at the sport specific loading requirements so depending on what the sport is um, you know, they're going to look at, at getting a good couple of weeks worth of training or 10 days, maybe thereabouts, depending on what their pre-injury level of, of, uh, of capacity is. Uh, and the main thing you want to take off from that point is then some high-speed work. Can they run really fast? Can they do it pain-free? And, and, and are they not regressing from where they were? Um, they need to get back into some teamwork stuff, some decision-making under pressure and, and all that sort of stuff, depending if it's a team sport or an individual sport. Um, but that's that's really when they're ready and, and hopefully it's all smooth sailing from there. If you do get them back into some of these sports-specific activities, do you, do you want them to be completely symptom-free or is there a, an acceptable level of discomfort and they can keep progressing? Yeah, I'd like, to, I mean, you'd like to see them symptom-free from whatever that initial pain was that restricted them, obviously. Um, I think it's, there's a level of, uh, irritation probably early on. I think there's some really good evidence in some of the soft tissue uh, studies that have come back with with sort of almost tolerating a, a level of discomfort early on in, in the rehab, and that, that can be really helpful. But at this stage, absolutely, I want them I want them pain pain free. Um, yeah, that, probably that classic sort of pain score um, indicator. That I think a lot of us tend to use. I, I, I always say to people, if you're getting that sort of three, four out of ten, I think I mentioned it earlier on. Um, three, four out of 10 sort of dull, achy pain. That's probably something to respect and keep an eye on, but it's actually, it could be just conditioning of the tissue that needs conditioning. Um, if once it starts to tiptoe above that and it starts to get sharper, then I think you need to put the brakes on pretty quickly and see what's happening. Okay. So if they do report some sharp discomfort, um, how, how do you approach that? Yeah, I, that's, that's a troubling situation. I think probably everyone's faced at some stage. Um, I tend to think it's it's worth going back to those basics again because it probably indicates we've missed something along the way. It's not a, not a, not a situation really anyone wants to wants to find themselves in, particularly that late in in the piece. And you'd hope that you'd ticked off some indicators earlier on uh, that, that will prevent that. Uh, look, the number one thing I think at that stage, if you're really confident you've you've found the the source of the pain and you've really found the, the or the source of the the, the issue. It, it could just be as simple as some load management. Drop them back a little bit. Uh, have they have they started running too quickly? You know, too quickly. Uh, have they started doing too much too soon? Have we missed something in that progression from change of direction to full to full training? Um, it, it's really just going back to those back to basics. Don't panic. Educate the patient. Make sure they understand what's going on. Make sure they're really comfortable. But really, just go back and say, you know, what what have we 
have we missed something for, as a first starting point? And if you if you haven't and you think it's purely a lighting issue, just a little bit of a download, keep them confident, keep them ticking in the right, in the right direction. But it's probably also worth just having a bit of a look at, at your initial findings, your initial testing. Has there been a strength regression? All those big red flags to keep an eye on, um, pain perception, strength scores. Take them back to that pre-injury state or, or early in the injury. And if you see those scores slipping away, then I think we've got something to worry about. Um, but I think the main thing is, look, yeah, like I, think I touched on it before, it, rehab is often not a, a linear progression you know, from 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 pain to, to return to play, there's going to be some ups and downs. It's just a question of getting your head around what, what's the pain to respect and keep an eye on and what's the pain to, to you know, put a stop sign up and say, hang on, we're going, to, we're going to look back. All right. So are there any really specific exercises that you think are crucial in the rehab process? Yeah, look, I think, uh, I, think I touched on it a bit earlier on. I think the main thing that you're looking at in terms of those big compound movements, uh, the ability of, of someone to squat, deadlift and lunge uh you can you can build a, a rehab program off the back of those so um lunging is one that you probably just want to be a little bit cautious of i think that, that's one where there is some shearing at the pubic surface so you, you need to be you know make sure the athlete's ready for that but they're probably the three pillars i'd look at to start off with and then and then i'd probably still bring it back to the stabilizers on top of that so build those prime movers make sure they're, they're going to get you up and running and and do the heavy lifting for us so to speak um and then really working on those on those stabilizers um so trunk control pelvic control deep hip unit um they're probably the, the three or four places i'd go to first because they're the ones that when you're under fatigue and for a field athlete whether you're playing hockey netball football basketball whatever it may be um they're the ones you're going to call on sort of deep in the game yep um you know in in association with those prime movers okay now, moving on to some home management strategies, are there any that you will commonly recommend to people, so like icing, rolling, stretching? Yeah, look, I think icing is obviously really helpful in that early stage, so particularly the, the really irritable hips and groins, um, particularly those upper, you know, right around the pubic symphysis. Icing is obviously not, a, not always that easy in that area, but uh, it can be really beneficial to help help bring things back down in the early stage if they've had a, a flare-up either at training or during a game um and then i suppose a lot of it is about maintaining um yeah maintaining their mobility and 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 sort of uh muscle tone i suppose as as they're increasing rehab so you look think Things like foam rollers, um, spiky balls. I think the spiky ball is great for glutes. You know, you, everyone, you know, not much fun to do yourself, but they can be fantastic for, for digging into that sort of TFL and into the glutes just for some some post-training recovery sort of work to get them back up and running. Um, look, I'm a big fan of mobility. I think that's that's probably the big the big one. Get moving. Don't sit down for too long. Keep yourself, yep. you know, keep yourself going. Um they're probably the two or three. I, I think your best form of recovery still is always just going to be sleep and nutrition. They're, they're okay. the two big ones that I'd probably yep. lean on the most. But in terms of home management, yeah, look, icing and probably the spiky ball are the two I lean on the most. In terms of stretching, sort of early yep. on, can it be more detrimental, say, probably thinking more with iliopsoas and the adductors, yeah. and people will often want to get down and really stretch them out. Can that be more yep. detrimental? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you've got to be careful, obviously, when there's any tendon involvement with any stretching. Um, I'd be probably trying to limit how much stretching they're doing. Um, probably for a couple of reasons. I think one, yeah, is, is that is that tendon involvement. But you're also looking at, for a lot of these athletes, and it is different, obviously, with, with, with different athletes, but um, you're looking to promote stability. So sometimes stretching can be really quite counterproductive you, you probably don't need to overdo the mobility stuff in, or, or stretching sort of stuff if you're trying to bring stability into the into the area in the first place um you know i think um i think one of the things i one of the other things i use a lot of them and, and i probably didn't touch on it before with treatment is, is actually taping and, and and bracing and belts and things like that so i know you had um daniella and, and ash speak yeah. about the pregnancy side of things on one of your yeah. podcasts and um and they touched on the use of Sorolla belts. You know, I'd have half a dozen athletes who have used those over the last 12 months at the footy club. Uh, some of them will still rely on them from time to time. Uh, it might be a comfort thing, but they also use, we use, we would tape 
uh, to stabilize, you know, whether it's through the anterior or posterior pelvis or, or both for some of them, um, quite a lot. So I think that the uh, the ability to bring that stability into things while you are also working on the side to, to increase their capacity is really important. So, um, yeah, taping is a really, really good asset okay. to have up your sleeve as well. Would you just do that sort of early on when they're quite irritable or when uh, whenever they're doing no, a, a training I'd, session? Yeah, generally, look, it, 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 it depends. I think probably you don't want to, obviously, a long-term thing. Uh, otherwise, you're probably missing something in the rehab or in their management. Uh, but yeah, look throughout the tra- throughout the year from a from a sport where I come from, where they're playing every week and they're you know the training loads are still quite high through the week, particularly through preseason. Uh, um, it, it's really handy just to help to deload things, and I think a lot of the time it gives them a bit more proprioceptive feedback, gives them the comfort, gives them a bit of comfort confidence that uh, you know they layer on top of what they've done from a strength perspective. So yeah, I think I think it's something you can use on ongoing. Absolutely. Right. And just final question, when would you refer for some imaging? Yeah, look, imaging's it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's, um, mm. Radiology can be really, really helpful. I mean, I, I think sometimes I've got the advantage, if you've got an acute muscle tear, um, it can be really helpful if you think there's an avulsion or whatever it may be through there, that, that can be really helpful. But um, I think back in the clinic, it, it probably comes back to the, the approach you take with a lot of your, your imaging. It, it depends on what you want, what you think you might find and what you might find. Um, it's got to correlate with what your findings are physically. So I think it's important, particularly in a country like Australia, where we do have so many field uh, activities, you're probably going to find 50% of, of athletes that you're scanning are going to have some form of either cam or pincer lesion or a labral tear or whatever it may be. And a lot of them probably aren't even aware of it. So I don't think radiology is, is probably absolutely necessary unless you feel like you're missing something, unless you, unless you don't feel like you're on the right track and there might be something missing um, or you've got an athlete who's particularly keen to get it done. That's probably something I'm not going to jump on straight away unless you feel like it's a bit about out of control. There's plenty of FAI floating around out there that people don't really, you know, is, it's not really yep. not symptomatic. You can, you can manage yeah. with some, yeah, some, some behavior modifications. I think the, the one thing I would say though, is I think you do have to be really careful with, um, I'm really conscious of hip pain in kids. I, I, I never oh. trust a, 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 a you know, a, a teen, young teen or a kid with, with hip pain. Um, I'm probably also quite wary of um, people with a history of, uh, you know, family history of hip complaints, replacements and the, and the like, and particularly probably in females with just the, the, the history of dysplasia and things dysplasia, like that. I think you've got to be on the lookout for those sort of things. Yeah, yep. so they're the, probably the ones I'd, I'd refer to. And then probably the only other time I'd refer... Um, if you've got some of those those really irritable hips, and they're probably not so much the guys and girls that are playing sport at a high level, um, but sports docs can do a lot of stuff with some injectables these days that can be fantastic in terms of management to help bring things back down to baseline and then you can build on. So they're probably the main times I'd be referring. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing no a lot of your your knowledge around the complex area of the groin. So um, thank you. I know you're really busy, so we really appreciate you taking some time. Uh, it's my pleasure em i really i really appreciate um yeah having me having me on and certainly look if people have got any questions or anything they want to follow up i'm more than happy um to be contacted by you know osteos or whatever throughout there so feel free to get in touch with me uh if you've Great. got any questions to follow up and go from there thank you so much thanks good em. luck, good luck for the season thank you very much The content discussed in each episode is the opinion of the participants only and should not be used as medical advice.